is Jerome and Kevin present a show where we discuss various short-term television shows on each episode. We will discuss one season of that show tonight. We are going to discuss the fourth and final season of IFC's Brockmire. My name is Jerome Cusan. I'm one of the co-hosts. You can follow me on Twitter at JeromeC1985. I have seen all four seasons now twice. We are part of the Real World Podcasting Network, a network that includes Pantheon Plus. There will be movies, Flipping the Pig, and in the archives, Real Bad, Mars Investigated, and from Broadcast Depth. Please leave a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform so as to help people discover the great work we are doing here. My co-host is Kevin Ford. He has now seen all four seasons of Brock Meyer. And Kevin, as I pointed out to you last time that we talked, uh, I pointed out to you that the beginning of the four seasons started just as the pandemic was getting going here in the United States. So, Kevin, how weird was it to see that news report talking about all the bad news at the beginning of Brockmire season four? It was very weird, but I'm also really glad that I did not watch it at the beginning of the pandemic. I'm glad I watched it when I did because I have a feeling I would feel it would it would hit a lot harder and make me a lot more depressed, sad. And it has a much more darker tone if you remember exactly when it aired. But it's strange to to see all that bad news. And again, like it aired during the pandemic. So it's not like they knew this was coming. And it just uh, turned out to hit a lot darker than I than they even anticipated. So there are a number of prescient aspects to the season that we are going to hit upon as we discuss season four. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different this time. We're going to talk about Basically, I want to divide this into three of Brock Meyer's most important relationships. The first one being with his surprise. He has a daughter, which we'll get into. Uh, we'll discuss his uh, relationship with baseball. And, of course, the most important for Brock Meyer personally, his relationship with Jules. But I want to talk about some of the world building that goes on because, Kevin, things are very, very dark we're talking about global warming in 2030 as the show basically fast forwards through 10 years of history to take us into 2030. There are no winters. There are disputed lands. It seems almost post-apocalyptic, but Kevin, yet people are trying to live their normal lives and some people are still trying to watch baseball. And Kevin, I have to tell you, in 2020, I watched this and I was like, I don't know how realistic that this is. 18 months later, Kevin, it checks out. Yeah, uh, they um, very much, I think, hit exactly what a more realistic concept of where we're going to be in the next 12 years kind of looks like for, for the worse. Absolutely. It's really sad. Like our dystopian stuff used to at least look cool, like Dune and uh, or not even Dune, but like, you know, your Blade Runners and stuff. You're like, all right, well, this is dystopian sad, but at least stuff looks really cool and it's futuristic. This is just a sad sort of dystopia we're looking at in Brockmire, but unfortunately, much more realistic. So, yes, I mean, throughout the season, it is there are there are references to just how bad things are. One of the more interesting aspects to this is this show, which I, I did not necessarily would have compared to The Leftovers. I think in a lot of ways, this final season kind of feels a little bit leftovers -y, just with some of the tonal things, just how dark things get. And in a way, I think season four kind of feels like the least funny 
of the seasons for that reason, but you have cults. You literally have a place in Morristown where there is a perpetual flame shooting out of the ground because of all the fracking that is going on. Uh, you have a pandemic in various states. New York is the Brockmeyer makes the joke about how New York, how different New York is yet. Staten Island is still Staten Island. So yeah, I think the world building is really fascinating. And because look, this show, nobody's nobody watches this show. If you look at the ratings, they're very, very small. So because of that, there really isn't a budget to represent the entirety of the world. But you definitely get a lot of hints throughout that things are not going well. Certainly not. And it does feel like because they knew this was the last season, one, they did. They had to do a bunch of jump arounds from time periods, kind of get every little last bit of story in that they needed to to kind of put a button on the show. But also... It feels like they made the decision to literally watch the the world burn as they closed out the show, which, uh, you know what, that's a that's an interesting wrinkle to take. But uh, it's it's so interesting to see how different season four is like whipping in a little message for you, a little bit of like idiocracy in there uh, and just giving you like this horrible like hellscape of what the world's going to turn into. And it's all uh, because of us and our stupid little choices we make. So I think that one of the most important themes of this series, and I think it's really crystallized, I think when you come into the final season of a show, this is where the writers and the people that are behind the show, producing it, directing it, the creative, this is where they're telling you what the show is actually about. And I think what this show has done is, is they have really just brought to the forefront what they are trying to get across. The idea that this is a terrible world that is only getting worse. But the important thing for our character, our main character, Brockmeyer, is the idea that although he is no longer an alcoholic, and although in some ways he is getting better as a person, that he still has a lot of work to do. I think that's one of the most important themes of this season is that Brockmeyer has to learn to still not be a selfish asshole because even throughout this season four, he continues to behave in a way where he is, he is transferring his addictive qualities onto someone else. And in this case, it is his daughter, Beth Kevin at the end of season three, we did not have, uh, Brockmeyer as a father. By the end of episode one, season four, his daughter is going to college. This had to be quite a whiplash for you. It was a bit of a whiplash, but I, I do think it's like, what do you do with Brockmeyer? Um, you know, I, you're right in that. And I think even anybody with an addiction will tell you that an addict's work is never done. Relapses happen even for people who have been sober or clean for decades. So for Brockmeyer, this is a constant battle. But that isn't necessarily the most interesting thing to watch. So having another person in his life to take care of, you see those addictive qualities come out uh, and taking care of her. You see him, you see his selflessness in a very selfish manner that even he doesn't seem to realize. But it's a lot of, I think in a lot of ways, it's stuff to keep him, keep him honest, keep him sober is pouring his life into his work, pouring his life into his family. And I thought that was also super interesting for Brockmeyer to not run away from his daughter when he realized that he had one. He poured his whole life into her and to the point where she needed to push away when it came to college time. 
So I thought that was an interesting choice because I think in most television shows you would see that like reluctance and whatnot and then eventually maybe some acceptance. And this was just Brockmire all in on being a dad right away, which is awesome because we want to like Brockmire, right? Not to mention, you know, the time constraints of a season to tell that whole story. But in the ways that she that that their relationship evolves and seeing how she interacts with the women in his life and stuff was all incredibly interesting to see. And I thought it was a fun way to explore Brock Meyer and his need to change and adapt and uh, realize that even his even his best intentions of staying sober and being the best person he can be have really selfish consequences. Sure. And this is also an opportunity for us to get one of our mo- a prominent Asian character, which is something that we really haven't had uh, on the show. Uh, especially Southeast Asian, I should say, um, as, as she is uh, part Filipino. And we get a couple of scenes uh, with both her in the Philippines and what her life was like and her mom, unfortunately, passing away and then having to go to Brockmire. And we even see Brockmire interacting uh, with uh, with her mom. And uh, what, what I would say was a pretty touching scene as the, as they connect over the the world of baseball. But in episode one, I think there there are a lot of little details that I really liked about and kind of the things the the things that go throughout the season the way that Brockmeyer does her his daughter's hair which I think at times comes off as really sweet and kind of endearing but then other times it comes off a little bit obsessive and a little bit creepy although I will say when they start making jokes about women in bangs i definitely i was definitely on brockmeyer's side on that one. Oh, it was it was very funny um how like the whenever he sees her after a long period of time he just can't help himself but make a comment or try to hide his displeasure in the choices she's made with his hair and wanting to fix it or what have you but uh and and again that's a great way to show that like oh this is our thing but it's really my thing and not letting her make her own choices good or bad about her hair uh, and then using bangs to weaponize her anger towards her father in in a moment where it is most important she looks her best was a very fun choice and uh, got a good laugh out of me when even she admitted she hated them and Brockmire could exhale and and uh, be honest with her about it, too. So interesting choice for that to be something that he mastered and took care of when she was a kid. But I really like how they instilled it into their interactions as adults. So at first, uh, Brockmire, of course, because it's his daughter, his daughter loves to talk. And the thinking is that she's going to go into public policy. But in fact, even though the world is ending, Kevin, she wants to go to NYU to be a film student and possibly be the next Christopher Nolan. And you can understand why this would make Brockmire a very angry human being because of his hatred and distrust of anything related to Christopher Nolan. And I very much appreciated the fact, uh, just his reaction to her wanting to go to art school and film school. I think it's something that you would probably see in a lot of parents, but especially in this dystopian nightmare, definitely something that would uh, would be play uh it would create a, a bit of strife, especially given how important, given how expensive NYU is. I don't know if NYU is actually one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I could definitely imagine it being one hundred fifty grand now. Oh, I'm sure it's probably. I mean, especially for an out of state tuition. Let's see. I'm I'm doing a little googling on here while I can. Okay, so NYU undergraduate tuition and fees is fifty three thousand dollars and three hundred eight, and that's the twenty nineteen twenty twenty, and that's. That's at probably for in-state, so out-of-state is probably a good, you know, throw half of that on top of there. 
I don't know. Uh, but yeah, not cheap. It is. Uh, it is certainly not cheap. And but this is uh, this is what she wants to do with herself. And a lot of the first two episodes are kind of covering their relationship. I think that one of the things that I would have liked to have seen with perhaps another season or more episodes is I would have liked to have seen Beth away from our main characters more. Like we get a little bit of her with her new boyfriend, but I'll be honest, she might as well have been have acting against a blank wall with all the de- with all the character development he has and with how basic he is, she might as well have been acting against a wall. Yeah, I agree. I think though that what we're again, half eight and a half hour episodes, what we need as an audience, what's most important is her relationship with Brockmire and the people in his immediate life. It's the name of the show after all. But obviously her having her own life and seeing more of that outside of just the moment with her boyfriend where she almost misses their special holiday and stuff. Even like I was thinking about her, the the comment she made about going to film school to be the next Christopher Nolan. Like there's part of me that would have loved to see like a montage or something at the beginning where like you probably had friends when you were a kid or something who like her parents didn't let them their parents didn't let them play video games or didn't let them watch you know, Simpsons or something. So when they go to a friend's house, what do they want to do? They want to play video games or watch the show. They can't. So I like to imagine that, like seeing Brockmire prohibitor from watching Christopher Nolan movies, but then she goes to friends and it's like the, this forbidden fruit. And now she gets into all these Christopher Nolan films, but can't tell him until now. Um, just seeing how, how, what choices she makes rebellious spirit or not intentional or not because of the way that Brockmire has raised her would have been, interesting to see more of what got her to be the way she is and as an adult. Um, but I just, I just simply don't think there was time for that. If they introduce this in the final season, I think I, it just, like I said, I think just seeing how she interacts with Brock Meyer and the couple people in his life is what the writers were like, this is what we need to focus on. Cause that's, what's most important. And I at least liked seeing her in the getting some agency with her and Jules alone uh, in the bar in one of the, and like, I think it was the back half of the season. Yeah, that was episode five where you got to see a little bit of Beth with another female character, which I think was it was good for the show to at least be able to do that. But the interactions with Beth and Jim lead to uh, uh, some of our more notable Godfather references. Unfortunately, we have to start with poor Clemenza. Uh, Brock Myers, baby boy, dead at the age of 110. And Kevin, I know that must have broken your heart that poor Clemenza was dead. Gone too soon. Rest in peace, baby boy. Uh, so uh, it's funny that so Clemenza was a part of the first Godfather and Clemenza is dead by the time of Godfather Part 2. But then there are two major Godfather references, but they are both from the second one. So I thought that was very fat. That was very interesting to me <laughs> as somebody who is into these kind of nerdy details, because in episode two, Beth and her boyfriend go to find Jim, who is uh, and she basically implies that he is in full Michael, Michael Corleone <laughs> in Godfather two mode. And he is literally sitting in the chair exactly like Michael Corleone in Godfather part two. Uh, unfortunately, she missed her first opening day with her father for the first time in years, even though he's the commissioner and he is constantly trying to make changes to baseball. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute, but uh, very funny. And also, in episode six, uh, he makes specific reference to Mo Green and an assassination, and that is also a Godfather Part Two reference. I for the when they said he went full Godfather and they went to his office, that was 
one of my favorite moments of the whole season. We talk about how this season is is less funny than a lot of them overall, but this was genuine laughs for me seeing him here. I also went to a rabbit hole of reading uh, Hank Azaria's Wikipedia the other day, and I didn't realize that the Godfather trilogy is what he is like consider his inspiration to become an actor. So I have to imagine if he's having some say that all these Godfather references and stuff as part of the Brockmire character are very much inspired by the real Hank Azaria's love for the film franchise. Absolutely. So the, these two individuals, uh, Beth and Jim, are having a lot of difficulties in the relationship as she is kind of trying to forge her own path. And Jim is really struggling with this. And, you know, it leads to a couple of very notable moments. And when we get into episode five, of course, Jules is hanging out with Beth. And what happens? Jules gets her stinking drunk. And this is a problem for, for Jim because, of course, he realizes that he is an alcoholic. And the last thing that he wants is for his offspring to come home raging drunk. And I think that it's it's a very powerful moment uh, for the Jules-Jim relationship. But just in terms of what it means for Beth, I mean, it's it's got to be a little bit traumatizing to see your daughter drunk for the first time, knowing that you're an alcoholic and knowing, like, who also caused this situation. And I think it's I think it's it it really adds a lot of nuance to the to the Jim Jules relationship because there's definitely a scenario where yes, yes, Beth has to forge her own path and if she gets drunk, she gets drunk. But also the fact that Jules is the one to get her drunk. Um, that's that's an important part of the development of this character and the argument that it leads to and what Jim ultimately reveals about not knowing anything about Beth's mom. It's uh, it's 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 a very powerful scene and just the way that the, those three interact with each other. Very much so. And I also think that the fake out at the end of episode four going into season five with uh, Jim and his ex-wife hooking up again and Jules realizing she loves Brock Meyer and then it kind of comes crashing down until she realized the situation isn't what she thinks. But then she sees how close uh, Beth is to his ex-wife too, really makes her realize the uphill battle she has. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of interesting dynamics there because she really wants to win over and create her own relationship with Beth. And there's friction there that alcohol helps bring them together. And again, it kind of goes into that forbidden fruit territory for Beth. And it's something that Brockmeyer, I'm sure, hasn't ever really explicitly stated that it's something he doesn't want Beth to get into. But there's also that reality that alcoholism is something that is carried on uh, hereditarily. And I think he's worried that he passed on the alcoholism gene to her. Um, and so obviously keeping her away from booze to not figure that out is the best way to make sure she also doesn't become an alcoholic. But it, in, in other ways, it brings out the truth to Beth and it's it does successfully bond Jules and her together. So there's a lot of like, is who's wrong in the situation? Is anybody wrong in this situation? It's just a very, it's it, to me, it feels like a very real scenario where like the actions and consequences all made sense. And it led to some really interesting things. So probably my favorite episode of this, of the season was this one. Uh, and I thought that, you know, the way they integrated Jules back in and the explanation for why Jim and his ex-wife were friends again and stuff. It all worked for me in a very sped up sort of capacity. Obviously, there's way more they could have fleshed out here, but I understand that we're we're against the, the time constraints with all this. 
So I will get into what my favorite episode is a little bit later, but I, I did appreciate the fact that Jim and Lucy are on good terms. And I like the fact that years have passed before they can like, you know, have sex and move on with from each other. I, I really like that they're able to do that. It, it just, it feels better than kind of if they had slept after his, his father's funeral, I think. Yeah. It, and, it, yeah. And I agree that it's Beth who is the impetus for him even reaching out to her. He does it for selfless reasons because he, they're, they're able to get it's him talking about her period, which he knows way too much about, but he realizes like she needs somebody who is a female presence in her life. And also somebody who is very sex positive was important to him. And that's when his ex-wife came to his mind. So it wasn't him just like trying to hook up again or find somebody to have a release with, but it was for his daughter. And it's based on that, that building of the relationship between Beth and his ex-wife that led to him and Lucy getting back together. So I appreciate that too, that it, that it went that way as opposed to the other way where Jim contacts Lucy for reasons for himself. And that led to a relationship with him and his daughter uh, that wouldn't have worked out as well in my mind as it is the other way with him, with him calling Lucy to establish a relationship with his daughter. And that's what leads them into being friendly again. Yeah. I think that that's, that's what works out for the best for, for the characters and whatnot. And I love the fact that Jim still has a voracious sexual appetite and it it does seem slightly healthier now at least he's not doing drugs but i like that they keep that attribute about him and that he is a uh, he's overcome some of the issues that he had in season three but i like the fact that jim is still a healthy sexual being and that that any issues that he might ha- that he might have is not related to the fact that he likes having consensual sex with people yeah this this actually is like one of the best sex positive shows that I've watched ever and that it's it's treated as a very normal thing. It's treated as all types of sex, whether it's casual, whether it's uh, romantic, what have you, as long as it's consensual and all that stuff, like all's good and uh, how they don't dismiss him having having sex because now he has to deal with his addiction. He's found a, a partner who he's compatible with that they have an understanding that it's you know, it's it's in a lot of ways, it feels very transactional with him and Lucy, which is fine. You know, we she's very well established as a very hypersexual person. Jim himself is pretty hypersexual, too. So in a lot of ways, they help each other. She gets to help his daughter with certain things. Everything works out in the end. And even when uh, Jules shows up, Lucy's excited for her, her and Jim to get back together. So it's one of those things where, again, they show that if they called off having sex with each other that day at that moment, it'd be fine. They could just move on with their lives to new sexual partners. And I love the way that that's all framed. There's no kink shaming or sometimes it's used for humor, but in the, in the right way, in a healthy way. And kudos to Brock Meyer for this whole show for all four seasons, really doing a great job with that. Absolutely. And essentially the last three episodes, and I think this has been true for a lot of the shows that we reviewed, the last three episodes kind of serve as finales in their own way. And in this case, the episode called The Hall, episode six, is kind of a finale in its own way because it essentially resolves the Brock Meyer-Beth relationship as Brock Meyer is the commissioner of baseball. He is about to be inducted into the Hall of Fame and he wants his daughter to give 
the big speech to induct him, but it leads to this big confrontation and discussion about like, who is Brockmeyer? Is he just a selfish person? Is he just an addictive person? And the fact that he lied to his daughter for years about not really knowing who his mother was. But then on the other hand, from Beth's point of view, Beth is a Brockmeyer. And of course she is going to use her ability to talk throughout this episode, but like, vengeance and revenge and this is something that gets brought up by jim is like just going scorched earth is not something that is healthy for anyone and that the best way to end this intergenerational trauma is to try to figure this out and and kind of end this and and come to kind of a more healthy um, mode and way of living and i really love the seriousness with which they approach that aspect but then you contrast it with joe buck's final appearance on the show this might be i think this is my favorite of joe buck's uh cameos it's a little bit more than a cameo um his guest starring appearance in this episode is fantastic just because just some of the lines that he delivers saying that jim is his best friend but he's not but that Jim is not his best friend. Uh, the way that he starts writing the speech and talking about fucking a dog, uh, the way that he just gets a bottle of champagne just randomly in his hand, just the timing of that is really funny. So I love the way that the hall really manages to contrast the seriousness of the Beth Brockmeyer discussion and also kind of serve as a coda to the relationship between Joe Buck and Jim Brockmeyer, which is something that has been a major factor in the first three seasons. Uh, but Kevin, all I could say about the hall just to, uh, and then I'll let you uh, speak on it. Uh, poor Mr. And Mrs. Posey. Who are Mr. And Mrs. Posey? Uh, do you remember the parents that they're constantly, that Jim is constantly making awkward comments in front of? Yes. Okay. Now I remember them. Uh, I do. Speaking of awkward comments, I think it's when he's talking with Beth. He's like, did I once marry a dog on a dare? Yes. Am I still paying that dog alimony? Yes. I just wish they would find somebody to be happy with. I love that one. The dog is still alive Two, everyone knows about it, because as you mentioned, he makes the comment, um, Joe Buck. He's like, don't tell me you're still fucking that dog. Like it's, it's those little things where like Jim will drop something. That's funny and weird in one scene and the next scene somebody else brings it up like it's just an understood fact of his life that that is just such great stuff for Brock Meyer here. And I actually think while episode five might have been my favorite episode, I actually think the interactions with Jim and Beth in this episode are my favorite parts of this uh, this season when she's still mad because she found out that Brock Meyer lied about knowing his wife and they have their debate because she's part of the debate team. That's how she's channeled her talking ability and they talk about it and it goes from being very tense um like a like a tense debate to then finally like a, a loving honest talk between father and daughter and it all ends up working out and that leads to our bangs thing we did and he doesn't have to have joe buck give his speech so all that stuff was really great um one thing i was thinking about and this is sort of in the back of my mind and maybe you could talk about a little bit is the baseball hall of fame itself so i know the hall of fame like when it comes to players and stuff is like a very like by by fans and even the people in it, like it's taken very seriously, lots of debate over it. But there's like very there's a lot of things that criteria that need to be met to go in. But what is that? Is there something like that, too, for broadcasters or is it more just like a, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just like a like a title for for those guys who don't who aren't players but are a huge part of the game itself. You know, coaches. I'm sure they may have some sort of thing, but I just for somebody like a broadcaster like Brock Meyer, if there's any sort of uh, any other like serious criteria, anything for them too. So I think in this case, there's there's kind of this significant contributor because if you think about it, Kim Brock Meyer is not only a broadcaster, but he's also the commissioner of baseball at this point. So there's kind of that going on as well. But for the broadcasters, my understanding, and if somebody, somebody who's listening, I can't imagine they know this criteria, but I believe that they rotate between inducting a local announcer. So for example, someone like Harry Carey, who is primarily known as somebody who did Cubs, Cardinals, White Sox games, right? Like for the team, like he would get inducted one year and then the next year they would induct a, a national announcer. Like, Joe Buck would go in one year after that. So they, I believe that they take turns and they, they induct someone. Uh, so the funny thing about it is, is that Joe Buck is actually, he's going to end up in two different broadcasting wings of the hall of fame because he's going next year into the pro football hall of fame already. Um, and he's probably going to end up being in the baseball hall of fame as well, because he is literally, he has broadcasted world series since the year 1996. He is only in his 50s he is probably going to do close to 50 world series before his career is over so that's pretty remarkable uh to think about but in terms of the hall of fame yes they do induct broadcasters they do induct commissioners uh the commissioner thing i think is a little bit i mean i i have something shocking to tell you kevin the the, the hall of fame can be very political at times what I mean, if you think the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame is is political, let me tell you, Kevin, the Baseball Hall of Fame is even more political. Right. Well, I just ask because my only frame of reference is the WWE Hall of Fame, which there is no criteria. It's basically a list of people that WWE likes who aren't on their shit list for some reason. But I do know that the 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 reverse of that is that I know that baseball fans do take their Hall of Fame very seriously and there is actual criteria that goes into it. So that's why I was just wondering what that is. But I, I do like that. That that choice of like local broadcasters one year, national broadcasters the next. I think that kind of touches on every point and it like it doesn't oversaturate with broadcasters or whatever. But that is interesting that like you're talking about this person going in after broadcasting so much and their career is probably not over. So to me, it is interesting, like in, in any Hall of Fame, when someone goes in before their career is ended. And I don't think that's a good or bad thing necessarily, but it's just very interesting. Well, with players, it's basically six years after you retire is when you can you can be inducted for baseball, uh, basketball. I think it's five years. Hockey, I know they like for hockey. Wayne Gretzky, literally the year after he retired, they just put him in because it's it's, it's Wayne, Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> yeah. So they make you know there are exceptions. I know in hockey specifically they have made exceptions, but you need to get seventy five percent of the vote from the baseball writers, and I know that. Uh, there, there are disputes about who should be in and who should be out, and I don't really have the time for that. But I will say, if, even if you are not a baseball fan, if you have a chance to go to Cooperstown, New York, and visit the Baseball Hall of Fame, it is a fantastic museum of American history. So even for someone like Kevin Ford, who is not a baseball fan, I would strongly urge you to make a trip to the Baseball Hall of Fame. It is, it's, it's a fantastic place. I went 
once in 2005 and I had a great time. I would love to go again. That's the kind of place that you could literally just spend days reading and looking at all of the, the memorabilia and all of the, all of the footage that they have. It is, it's just incredible. So yeah, I would definitely recommend to anyone um, during non-pandemic times, go to Cooperstown, New York and visit the baseball hall of fame. It's great. That is something that they do a little bit less in this final season of Brock Meyer is a lot of, especially like the first season seems like this large love letter to baseball and the nostalgia and what it means for just American culture and families and things of that nature. And obviously it's a lot of like, you know, I know a lot of the theme of this, like baseball is worth keeping alive and here are the reasons why, but it seems like way more of that is in the first three seasons of Brock Meyer than it is in this one. And it's just doing whatever they can to keep baseball around. And it's sort of the constant in, Jim's life and what they have their special opening day thing with himself and his daughter. And obviously that's how him and Jules met. So it's a constant in season three establishes a religion, but baseball does seem to be more of a background thing in season four than it has been on the forefront in previous seasons. That actually serves as a really good transition as now we can talk about Jim's relationship with baseball in the year 2030. Baseball is not doing well at all. And things are so desperate. Things are so dire. They decide to make Jim Brockmeyer the commissioner of baseball. And he has a number of ideas. And, and so baseball 2.0 is one of the ideas. And basically the idea is that they want to incorporate new ideas. But the owners are very apprehensive about doing new things. And Jim has to kind of figure out, like, how is he going to navigate this? What are the ideas? that he has is uh is new bats kevin and it this leads to the best character of season four batty you do love batty i mean he's no clemenza but batty is pretty good and it's actually a mascot that he gets along with so jim brotmeyer is not only improving as a human being when it comes to not consuming substances but he is no longer arguing with batty as uh, he and batty they do a little dance kevin and it is glorious my favorite part of not okay, not my favorite part of the season, but one of the more underrated parts of the season is that later on in that episode, when it is opening day, we see Batty at the bar drinking hard alcohol. <laughs> so I have no no idea who the baseball commissioners or what they do, but is is this amount of public image stuff that Jim is getting as the baseball commissioner here and doing, you know, the press conferences and being a former broadcaster that was given this role. Is that all realistic to how like a real commissioner would both be presented and the type of person who would get that role? Typically baseball commissioners are lawyers and soulless people. So Brotmeyer would probably never, if brought, if, if Jim Brotmeyer was the commissioner, then baseball really is in dire straits and they're about to die because they would never, they would almost never let somebody do this. Basically, the commissioner is the hired hand of the owners. The owners are the one who selects the commissioner, and he is at the whims, especially in baseball. The owners are really the ones that are in control. It's a The dynamics are a little bit different in each sport. I think in basketball, in basketball, the players have much more agency in that sport. And... I think the commissioner has to be much more judicious in how he manages the players 
in that sport, whereas in baseball, it is very much the hired hand of the owners. So in this case, uh, it is a desperate situation. And yeah, the bats are not going to help. But bringing new ownership is going to potentially work. And one of the ideas, Kevin Ford, is to is to sell off the Cleveland Indians to a native tribe, an indigenous tribe, and call them the Cleveland Colonizers. The Indians changing their name. Well, that'll never happen. Well, Kevin, it's funny you mentioned that because the Cleveland Indians are, in fact, going to be changing their name in 2022. They will no longer be an offensive name. They will instead be the Cleveland Guardians. I guess, unfortunately, colonizers is a little bit too offensive, Kevin, which is unfortunate because I would have I would have loved Cleveland colonizers merchandise or. So this is a this is a funny side note. So there is a there is a journalist uh, whose name is Bamani Jones, and he once wore a shirt that said Cleveland Caucasians, and the symbol was basically the Cleveland Indians mascot, except it was a white person with blonde hair. Oh boy! <laughs> and he wore that on television. I'm going to send you a picture of it. I love this. So, I'm sure people are mad about it, and it's like, yeah, but you're, you don't get the point, are you? You're you're missing what I'm what I'm driving you, at. You could probably imagine who was mad at it too. Yep, sure could. And oh gosh, like the 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 mascot they presented to this almost felt to me like he was trying that that Brockman was trying to sabotage baseball by by this choice. I mean, to an extent, I've sent the picture so you can take a look at that shirt. Um, that is fantastic. So I think that. I think mainly what he is trying to do is he's trying to incorporate new ownership and he doesn't like the owners because something else that Brockmeyer has learned, as I think we all have, is capitalism is bad and billionaires are immoral. And I'm going to let you talk about a very notable scene, uh, hearkening back to the great 1999 Kevin Smith film Dogma. Yeah, so both both Jerome and I are very familiar with Kevin Smith's work. And there is a scene in Dogma with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck where they go to movies, this fast food restaurant empire during a board meeting. And they more or less because they're angels, they know all the dirty secrets of all these board boardroom people. And they tell them all out loud before executing all of them. But one woman who has had a good life and Brock Meyer in very similar fashion reveals to all the owners who are trying to, of course, usurp his power, try to impress their power on him that. He knows all of their dirty secrets, and you just get a montage of him very angrily yelling out their marital affairs and all these other awful things that they've done as human beings in the scene. And it sort of uh, levels the playing field, because as long as they play ball, those secrets will say secrets. And if they don't, well, Jim has the power of those secrets to expose at his uh, at to put at his disposal. And the great thing about Jim Brockmeyer is obviously there's a lot of things that he's done in his past that he regrets and wouldn't do again. But I'm sure between his podcast and just the Internet and everything else and uh, him being very open with his shame of those things, there's really no secrets of Rockmeyer's that they can do. So it really which is an it's an understated thing. Um, but I appreciate that that's out there, that he has all these secrets that they're trying to hold steady. And while and Jim Brockmeyer once upon a time, maybe had some secrets that he wouldn't want to let out. He's put them all out there on his own. For sure. It's it's a great scene. It is. Uh, it's definitely one of the best of the season. And it is it is one of the rare times that Brotmeyer just gets to unequivocally be right and just yell 
and billionaires. Who doesn't want to do that? Especially now, Kevin. Who doesn't just want to sit there and yell at billionaires and call them out for all their shit? I'm sure none of these billionaires today have any secrets. No marital affairs, no abortions they've paid for despite being publicly against it. Nothing of the sort. And, and I bet that all of them would choose to make morally upstanding decisions. Like, they would never do something crazy like just go to the outer rims of space and instead of, like, helping the poor eat or something like that. No, or blame their daughter for wanting to have a spring break vacation when everybody in their state is uh, frozen and out of power and out of food. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who you could possibly be talking about. These are all hypotheticals, of course. Very much so, yes. World's going to turn out great in 2033, I'm sure. Brock yeah, Meyer doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm sure the writers are just living in a in a dystopian fantasy. Uh, but again, no cool lights or uh, cool-looking buildings. <laughs> uh, so so things with baseball are not going well. One of my favorite running gags about this, by the way, is the way that they talk about how long baseball games are and yeah. just some of the issues that arise. And that is something that I definitely connect with because I swear to God, baseball games are way too goddamn long. Every like so I'm a White Sox fan, so I, I do watch a lot of baseball. Every game is like three and a half to four hours long. And I they, the games, they really need to make them shorter because. Look, my idea is, is that if your sporting event is longer than two and a half hours, you really just need to stop. And it's really annoying. And all these games are just too long, especially baseball, though, because baseball doesn't even have a clock. So baseball needs to get shorter and they can never figure it out because they try baseball 2.0. They try the bats. Uh, they try cotton uniforms. But of course, the cotton uniforms. I love the idea that they rebooted the game. <laughs> It's just like they literally it's like the computer. They just restarted the computer. That's pretty funny to me. Wasn't there legitimately like a uniform change thing in, in baseball or another sport that had some sort of like playing problem or some some like controversy that came because of it? Um, I know that some, I know that they have they do wear the cotton uniforms like sometimes as one offs, but I don't know if there's been a specific issue with baseball uniforms. I don't, I don't necessarily I'm I'm not saying you're incorrect. I just don't know. I don't remember this. It's very possible. I'm thinking of like a Seinfeld episode or something where this happened too. now that I think about it. But well, I think, you know, and I think that's a real thing with sports is that some games are so friggin long baseball, football, other games. Um, and I think that is a deterrent for some people, especially when you have a halftime that can sometimes go forever or you have uh, pauses and breaks and whatnot. And I'm sure for our society that the attention span just gets lower and lower. A lot of people are either not watching together or just going to watch the highlights the next day of all games that don't involve, quote, their team. They're going to watch their team's games, but otherwise just check out the highlights on ESPN or whatever the next day. Yeah, uh, you mentioned Seinfeld. I can assure everyone we will never talk about Seinfeld. I promise you we will never do that because I don't like Seinfeld. That's insane. But I I would want to do a podcast on it anyways because it's nine seasons and like, you know, it's it's not like there's some narrative things, but really it's just singular episodes. So it wouldn't necessarily work the same way as a podcast. It'd have to be something like we did for The Simpsons, but uh, obviously we're not going to do that. Nope. All right. Let's talk about the penultimate episode a little bit. Half of it. So there's two halves of it. The Jules of Brotmeyer half, which we will get to. And of course, there is the union negotiations as they are making one last desperate attempt to save baseball with more access. 
shortening of the games and whatnot. I have to say, I did not like the payoff to this. I don't know what it just it fundamentally did not work for me this union negotiation and then the subsequent thing uh with uh the uh the tech company it i don't know what it is but paul f tompkins what is your opinion on paul f tompkins are you a fan i am a fan yes so did you like him in this specific context though because it just totally felt completely off from the rest of this season i don't think i i so i liked him but I don't know that I really understood what his role was or what even the negotiation was. I don't think that was fleshed out well enough for, I was just like, I know there's a negotiation and a possible strike coming. And I'm, I, it seems to have to do with money. And cause Jules has this idea of like making the game more socialized with each individual player, having like cameras or microphones and stuff on them um, and sponsorships and things like that. So I kind of understood that, but the whole thing to me didn't feel as explicitly stated as I would have liked. Like I, the stress came through, the issues kind of came through, but what it all kind of boiled down to was kind of lost on me. And even what, what, uh, like if, if Paul F. Tompkins was like the lawyer or just a, you know, an advocate or what, all of that, I don't think was explained well enough. Right. And even for me, as somebody who does have some understanding of baseball and their history with labor, which is an important aspect of their history. I mean, if you, um, someone like Marvin Miller, who was the original kind of basically invented the idea of a baseball union and made it and made it one of the most powerful unions in the world. So the idea of this is is interesting and there is a way to do it. Unfortunately, I think that the main reason that they did this was to contrast the idea that Jules is both negotiating on behalf of baseball, but she is also negotiating with Jim on their relationship. So I think that that is part of the issue. Like I get what they're going for, but ultimately it it doesn't totally work for me. And just some of the random asides that they have in the episode uh, don't totally work. But by the last episode, this uh, the evil tech company, or I'm sorry, the the benevolent tech company has decided that they are going to help save baseball because it will help save America, Kevin. That's what it's going to do. Well, we need something to save America, and I, and I guess why not this? I, I do love that this tech company slowly becomes more and more important as the season wears on to the point where basically the last episode kind of feels like a Black Mirror episode. I've not seen Black Mirror, so I'll take your word for it. Well, then, I mean, there's some Black Mirror episodes you should watch and are very good. And then there are some that you should just avoid and never watch. Isn't there one with uh, Cameron from Halt and Catch Fire that people seem to really like? That is one of the best ones. Yes. Okay. Surprise, surprise. Uh, so let's talk about the Jules. Mac- and- Mackenzie Davis. That's her name. Yes, Mackenzie Davis. Let's talk about Jules and Brockmeyer. So you said episode five is your favorite, right? Yeah, I think so. What does it say about me as a person that episode three is my favorite episode of the season? Man, that is that first heart was really tough to watch to see just how how the fracking really destroyed uh, Morristown. And it, it was depressing. How could you like this? I don't I don't know what it says about me as a person i don't know i i think i have an affection for jules as a character even though she is in a she's she is a terrible terrible mess but i i just love the idea that they came back to morristown and for one last time and just to see how bad things have gotten and i don't know i i just think like 
the fact that they went there, like at the beginning of the, so the beginning of the episode, Jules is kind of promoting baseball. It's 2024. He has brought this kind of extreme artist in the vein of an evil Knievel. Uh, But as it turns out, this person is not doing well and commits suicide. And literally there are, there are parts of his body. There is plasma flying everywhere. And it's one of the most darkly funny things. Again, suicide is not funny. Just like abortion wasn't funny in the first season, but they somehow managed to find a way to make it both funny and tragic at the same time. And there is a very fine line between those thing- things. And basically, Jules is back in Morristown. Uh, she is a bartender once again, and life is just really depressing. Uh, she is leading tours of Morristown with the perpetual flame, but ultimately it is Charles we don't get a lot of in this season, and I think it's unfortunate that we don't really get a lot of Charles. We get almost none of Gabby, so I think that's that kind of sucks. But what we do get here is uh, Charles convincing Jules to return. She decides that she is not. But then Jim, who has been in almost none of the episode, finally comes in about 15 minutes in, and uh, they talk about having a professional relationship and her coming back to try and save baseball. I also love episode three because we get numerous very funny fake commercials throughout as well. Oh, God. Yeah, the commercials were hilarious and sad, but again, hilarious. But so I will say this. The Evil Knievel stuff was hilarious, but it's the part where – it's the bar. Um, it's, it's like the copper wiring being stolen from it. It's the 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 perpetual flame, the the fracking, the the cancerous air in Morristown. But it all does serve to show that Jules is a character. I would say for worse, is very stubborn and won't give up. She's not going to give up on Morristown. She's not going to give up on her bar. She's not going to give up on baseball. And ultimately, she's not going to give up on her and Brockmire, what you see in in episode seven. Um, so it's a really great showcase for that very strong trait of Jules, uh, and it carries out with her the rest of the season, but yeah, it's a, it's just a little sad to, to see the town in disarray and just, I think it's, it's just because there's like a realistic tint to it where you're like, oh, I could see a city getting this bad. That makes it so, so sad. I mean, I don't know if there are cities that are this bad, but there are definitely cities in this country that are in just about as dire straits. Maybe there isn't the flame shooting out of the ground, but there are definitely towns that uh, that have probably these these this level uh, of issues. So yeah, it is a uh, it is very depressing. Uh, but things, I guess, lighten up a little bit as we go into uh, episode four, where Jules does agree. Uh, to help Jim out and just where that all leads to the fact that she learns about him having a daughter and just trying to negotiate what their relationship is, is, uh, is going to look like. One of my favorite details from this season is the, the statements that they have to make to the HR person. <laughs> Kevin is a, as somebody who works in this field, what if somebody handed you Jules and Jim the fuck year? Uh, so fortunately, that would not be a me thing. That would maybe be a central HR thing. And I don't think that our department keeps track of any of that stuff. Um, the only time it would ever come into play is if there was like a conflict of interest of like uh, one spouse being the supervisor of another spouse they would never let happen. But otherwise, I don't think that stuff needs to get reported. But I can understand why in the power structure of something like uh, the MLB or whatever they call it in this or maybe they just don't call it anything 
how they would present this. But usually it is just like a statement of a contractor, uh, you know, a statement that you are in a romantic relationship with someone who also works for there. And uh, Jim, Jim is not one who is for brevity. So being presented something called their fuck year is one hilarious for all the obvious reasons, but two very, uh, very Jim Brockmeyer move. Jules, of course, is gives one one piece of paper. Jim gives this giant book. I really wish the book had been released, Kevin, because I would have made you. I, we would have read it together. I would have a million percent read that. <laughs> How many Godfather references do you think are in it? Oh, several. Has to be. <laughs> some, some that are shoehorned in, even. So uh, you mentioned episode five as being your favorite. And part of the reason I think it is is that we get a lot of jewels with Beth. Um, Jules, it definitely feels like Jules is, is in full spiral mode, especially because she is no longer married to George Brett because he likes golf too much. But her alcoholism seems to be even worse than it was in season three. I don't know if you got that same impression, but it definitely comes across like Jules is in a very unhealthy place. Yeah, I mean, her her marriage is gone and I think her alcoholism contributed to that. But like it's hard to 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 I don't want to say put her at fault necessarily, but it's very understandable that with the condition of the world is that she has nothing else. Everything in her life is is going wrong. It, so, so to see her uh, alcoholism take a turn for worse is not a hard is not a big surprise. And it's something I think that is. um What's the word I'm looking for? You, you can feel empathy about it as opposed to, you know, shame or what have you. Absolutely. But there is some bonding that takes place uh, between these two characters as uh, they go to a drag brunch, which is a real thing. And uh, of course, they get very liquored up. Uh, they hit the streets of New York and uh, there's an interaction with the cult again. My favorite. It's not a running gag because they only do it a couple times. But Jules just randomly pulling out the gun, both in the bar when she's ready to seemingly shoot someone coming off the street and literally shooting a gun in the streets of New York. I, I very much appreciated that as well. I also appreciated that um, when they leave the bar, Beth, first of all, they both have uh, to go cups with alcohol and it says whatever the name of the gin drink was on Beth's. She's also wearing a blonde wig and fake boobs and has her makeup done like a drag queen. And there's just like no explanation as to why that why you would go to a drag bunch and come out looking that way. Uh, So, yeah, really, really fun stuff between the two of them. You know, I think that the other funny thing about this episode, and this is kind of a meta textual thing, is one of the one of the jokes that has been made about certain Democrats is that after Joe Biden was would get elected, that they would just go back to brunch and ignore the realities of the world. And I could not help but think of that as I was watching this particular episode. Like, again, the world is on fire and they're going to brunch. Which is just an excuse to drink uh, in the daytime is what I am to understand from Jules and uh, let's be honest, many other people who brunch. Yes, uh, mimosas are a great way to get day drunk. And I also I one of the more an underrated detail is Jules talking about the different alcohols and the effects that they have on people. I also appreciated that. Absolutely. Yeah. And and again, someone who is an alcoholic would have a very. Would have a lot of opinions on alcohols and what they say about a person. Uh, Disappointing. No drinking a beer, though. No drinking a beer. 
I'm I'm a little I'm kind of glad that it's in that one episode because they it, it didn't give it a chance to get bastardized or watered down. It'll always remain pristine and funny in my memory. That is uh, that is definitely uh, for the best. So le- episode seven, I think the, the best parts to me are Jim and Jules negotiating uh, what their relationship is going to possibly be be looking like. And the fact that I, I, Jules' ending speech to Jim, where she talks about how they're these broken people and they kind of compliment each other, it was it was genuinely an emotional and moving speech in my view. And I, you know, I think that they kind of took some shortcuts to get them back together, but I think that their part of episode seven with them just figuring things out and negotiating what she can drink and whatnot and having her be more involved in Jim's life. And especially with the revelation at the end of episode seven, it is, it is genuinely touching that, that they get married at the end of episode seven and that Jules gives this, that Jules is the one to kind of give this very powerful speech about why they should be together. I think on a regular show, again, the show was Brockmire. So it, it should be the main character that gives it, but I love that Jules is the one to give the big speech. And you know, what's really great too about that is there's also this thing where when her and Beth are talking best, like, why are you so, well, you know, why do you still love my dad or something? And she admits like, because he's the only one who's ever seen my, who's ever taken me as I am. Like, there's some people who for for the for their own mental health or disassociate people's flaws with who they are, but he takes her as is, acknowledges those flaws, accepts her for who she is. And yes, like he'd probably like her to drink less and stuff, but he doesn't outright try to change her. Um, and that's and that's a great reason to love and be with somebody. And it's a great trait of Brock Myers, too, because uh, w- let's be honest, who is he to judge? But yeah, and then they take like you said, they take that with her being the one who pursues him and convinces them to get married and they do. And it's a lot of fun and it's a fun way to kind of cut short the negotiations. And you're right. They take a lot of shortcuts with a lot of their relationship stuff here. And I think that this this can happen with shows like this where they where they're like the time jump will kind of make it so the understanding is, oh, yeah, there was a bunch of stuff that happened in that nine years, 12 years, whatever, how many years that led them to this point that we just can't really get into, whether it's on an individual basis or between the two of them. So just something you're just going to have to accept if you want to get your happy moment with Jules and Brockmire by the end of the show. And I think it's also a situation where time can heal all wounds as well. I think the fact that it's been so long and so many years and so much water under the bridge, I mean, the world is literally ending. What does what does them having an argument actually mean in the context of the world seemingly being on fire? So I think yeah. that there's there's also that part to it. Uh, but a revelation at the end of episode seven is that uh, that Jim has has Parkinson's disease. And of all the things, Kevin Ford, to possibly end Jim's life, it's it's Parkinson's. What what a revelation. Were you were you were you nervous that he was going to die in episode eight? Oh, a million percent. I thought he was going to die. In episode and eight. Kevin was thinking, is this just like Halton catch fire? <laughs> yeah, honestly, now that you mentioned it, it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, there was a way more time uh, with Scoot McNary in Halton catch fire with seeing him him diminish because of his disease. Uh, and this would have been much more quick. Uh, but it, I, this is, I mean, just something TV shows do. And naturally, it's something that's going to take his uh, ability to speak away. And I do love that. As as dramatic as this is, there is some relief from both Beth and Jules when they hear this. 
I love the doctor scenes are some of the funniest and we get another really good doctor scene as there are being tons of jokes being made about him finally uh, shutting up. But I, I love that that this is something that they bring up, but that they still find a way to have a happy ending for the show as the last scene is Jim with Beth and with Jules and with Lucy and with Charles as they're uh, at opening day of uh, of baseball in 2034. And it's a very powerful moment. I think Hank Azaria, there are times when it feels like this show is much less focused on Brock Meyer. To me, I, I wish that he had gotten an Emmy nomination for this season specifically, because I think this is some of his best work. And just that last scene, especially the look on his face after he gets the phone call, about medicine that may or may not have worked. You can kind of leave that up to your own interpretation. But the fact that he's that he has created a world for himself, even though the world's on fire and, and baseball may live or survive, but like he has been able to kind of survive and he is able to kind of put something together for himself and get better. Like the motivation to get better is so that he can have a family and that he can have people in his life that he actually cares about. And I think that is a really powerful message that a show like this is under no obligation to necessarily have. But in in so many ways, I think the show is similar to Halt and Catch Fire because, again, it is about people, specifically men, that are getting better and trying to not – they're not Walter White, they're not Don Draper, but they're actually trying to – rectify some of the things that they have done in the past and trying to become better people. And I just love that final scene because he gets this call about the medicine that may or may not worked. And before he takes it, he looks around, he's in his, he's in his box at a baseball field, his favorite place on earth. He sees his current wife, his ex-wife and his daughter all tap talking happily. Sees his best friend, Charles talking to, to this new love of his, that if the scene is to be explained, they'll probably end up together and be happy ever after. And he realizes like how great his life is that he's created for himself and he takes the call. And then just the, the simple genius choice of the show ending with him not saying anything and everything he needs to say is on his face as he takes a seat and he looks morose and then has a smile on his face. Again, lots of interpretation on what that call could have said is just such a great way to end the show. This guy who won't shut up, finally just shutting up, letting his face speak for himself his whole family knows what's going on and they're all looking on the field and there's, there's tears, whether it's of joy or sorrow again is up to, up to your interpretation. Such a great way to end the show. So brilliant. Yeah. And uh, when he says that they have time, there's time yeah. now. There is time now. Well, at least he doesn't wear glasses. So that's good. Uh, but yeah, that, that is season four. Any, any other moments or things that uh, we did not address that you want to talk about now? Uh, we really didn't even talk about the whole like Lemon Corporation stuff, which kind of feels like a weird like, you know, Google or stuff, although this company absorbs Google. But just like this communication thing that everybody has that was I thought like a very, um, you know, they they use even they make a joke about how you can't even use the word or- Orwellian anymore because that's just their life. But for our sake and what we're talking about here, it is a very Orwellian way of life that people have welcomed into their universe. Yeah, that stuff didn't really do a lot for me. It felt very Black Mirror-ish, and I think when you're talking about the tone of this show, I think that there are times that they're able to straddle that tone extremely well. 
Yeah, that stuff. I mean, Jim interacting with the little machine and getting into arguments with it, like that was funny. But that stuff just it felt very outside the realm of what the show could really could really handle. Because again, if you're gonna talk about technology in terms of of that, then you really have to go like full black mirror or you have to make it like the focus. It really it just it felt it felt better when it was kind of a side thing. And, you know, even the way that they used it at the beginning of the first episode, like that stuff that I just, in the rewatch, I completely forgot about that scene even. So that should tell you how memorable it was. It was an interesting, like, means to an end in some ways and sort of like, um, like just sort of like as an excuse to do some narration or some fun jokes. But yeah, I mean, it could have, it could have done without it. But, you know, again, perhaps a dark look into our future when there's like four companies or one company. Yeah, I mean that is a definite possibility. I also like at the end of episode season or uh, of season episode two when Brotmeyer tells Charles they're gonna fix baseball and he literally runs away. I love that. Right, when he's like coming out of the bathroom, he's like, Oh, I'm still here, we're gonna fix baseball, then he just runs away without saying anything. I need that in gift mode. <laughs> it's pretty good. There, it has so many uses. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sad we didn't get Gabby this season. I think uh, I I would have even if it was a cameo or something. I, she does get mentioned at the end of episode eight, and the implication is that they're still friends, which is good. I just wish we had gotten a little get a little bit of Gabby this season. I definitely agree. I would have really loved to have seen Gabby in this. I wonder if she was just busy on a show, or they realized they didn't have time for her. But yeah, I would have really appreciated that. So yeah, that is Brockmire. We have completed four seasons of Brockmire, Kevin, and I've got to say. It's it's really tough for me to rank the seasons, even so I'm gonna I'm gonna have you try to do it though. So for me, just based off of this rewatch, especially, I think my perception of of season two is probably a little bit better. My perception of season three might be a little bit worse in some cases. I think season four has neither my favorite episode nor my least favorite episode, but I think that there are parts of it that that don't work for me as well so my ranking is as follows one three two and four i would probably flip four and two but one and three i would definitely put as my top ones four is also such a hard one to rank because it's so different from the other seasons yeah it really it really almost feels like a totally different show but yeah i mean they're all and and those rankings like it's all pretty darn close to one another i think the quality is pretty consistent through the show and it's like if you haven't seen it again, it's a total of 32 half hour episodes. It's a breeze. I watched for the most part. I watched two a day just to kind of keep myself separate and keep my thoughts sort of more clear on episodes and such. But you could easily knock this out really quickly. If, and it's it's so easy to watch. It's fast to watch just in general from its runtime. So uh, Jerome, you have yet to steer me wrong with some of these shows. Big time thumbs up for Brock Meyer uh, in general. And uh, I, I I mean, look. Brockmire does or Brockmire. Hank Azaria does not need the love from the people. I'm I'm sure the the millions and millions he's made off the Simpsons are plenty enough for him. But I hope this man can uh can get some love for his acting and work outside of the Simpsons as well. And I and this this deserves more love than it got, but I think being on IFC that's uh, that tends to happen. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate that 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 Hank Azaria did not get more credit for this show specifically. I think the writing on this show is is very good and the the sex positive nature. I wish that that is something that also would have been talked about. It's not something that I really thought about, but you mentioning it and thinking about 
just the amount of sex positivity. I really wish that this show had been given more credit for that too, because I think that is notable. That's not something that you get, even with the best prestige shows. I think there's still this archaic view of, of sex, even Mad Men, as good as that show was, I think the way that it treated sex in a lot of ways uh, was very negative. Um, yeah, I, I really like the show. The fact that, you know, for me, this is a show that I was always going to be into. Hank Azaria being on the show is a big plus. It's it's about a baseball broadcaster. So also something that is going to immediately grab my interest. So this is definitely a show that I'm glad that I watched twice now. And uh, I feel like I have a much better appreciation of, of all the seasons, especially three and four. And just thinking about like where we are with prestige TV and just the way the characters are written and approached. And this, uh, this is definitely unique. And I love the big swings that each season takes. They could have rested on their laurels and made each season kind of an underdog story, but they really went for it in a, in a great way. And I think in a lot of ways, this show walked so that a show like Ted Lasso can run because Ted Lasso is a much bigger show, much bigger budgeted, but in a lot of ways, I see a lot of the DNA of Brockmire in Ted Lasso. And I'm not going to explain how, because Kevin has not seen Ted Lasso as we are recording this, but I see a lot of DNA in, in Brockmire that I do in Ted Lasso. Well, that is, definitely is a good thing to say to convince me to watch Ted Lasso. I mean, the humor is just completely different, but there are, there are definitely aspects of both shows. There, there are a lot of commonalities in both shows. I'll say that. All right. Fair enough. All right, Kevin. So why don't we tell the people what we are going to be doing uh, for 2022? Because 2022, it's going to be kind of a weird year because we have the third season of Barry that will potentially be returning in the spring. We also potentially have the sixth and final season of Better Call Saul. But we don't have dates as we are recording this for those episodes yet or for those seasons so we're going to kind of be we're going to be kind of flying by the seat of our pants um just kind of like we did for for this for this episode that we're recording right now so kevin uh why don't you tell the people what we're going to be doing next year like yeah like you said we know and i putting in quotes know that we're going to have barry and the final season of better call Saul to address with some of our episodes next year but we definitely need to have some stuff fill in those other months and probably something a little more finite. So whenever Barry and Better Call Saul come out, we don't have to drop something halfway through or what have you. So in order to meet that uh, finiteness, aside from those things in 2022, Jerome and I will be covering shows that were canceled too soon. And uh, it'll be a nice, fun mix of stuff that you and I have both seen, some stuff that I've seen that you haven't, some stuff you've seen that I haven't. But a lot of our, our favorites are soon-to-be favorites that uh, were unfortunately canceled or taken off the air for many reasons too soon. So an example of some of the shows uh, that we are going to be talking about include uh, Freaks and Geeks, which is a show that Kevin and I have watched a million times, I'm sure. Yes. And that will probably not be one where we go episode by episode because – our guess is no. that you've probably seen it as well. So we're going to cover some of the more thematic. We'll cover thematic elements, favorite moments, things like that, performances, lines, all that jazz. Um, because it's Freaks and Geeks, and 
I'm sure a million podcasts have been done. I mean, just the director's commentaries, which are kind of podcasts in themselves on those episodes uh, are significant. Uh, We're also going to be reviewing Party Down, which I have never seen. Kevin has seen both seasons of, so we're going to, we're going to reverse the dynamic. Then we're going to reverse the dynamic again and talk about a show that, that Kevin has not seen. And I have been meaning to rewatch and it involves one of our favorites, Amanda Pete. It also involves Mark Duplass togetherness an HBO show that I don't even know that most people have probably even heard of, but it is a, it is a show that I really liked and was canceled after two seasons. And we're going to talk about, uh, so the book and the movie, I know that Kevin and I really like. Kevin has not seen the show version, but I know he's been meaning to. We are going to talk about high fidelity as well as part of this. Yeah, and it's it's really fun that we're covering these things because, like, yeah, Freaks and Geeks has been talked by a lot of people. But the fact that it kind of launched so many careers from Judd Apatow to almost all of the actors on that show to become, like, icons of the comedy industry – it's important to talk about. And for our purposes, Party Down uh, was partially created by Rob Thomas, who created Veronica Mars. So we have that tie-in for our show as well. I love Mark Duplass, so I, and I've never seen that show. What did you say? Togetherness? Together Togetherness, again? Togetherness yeah. is on okay. HBO, and it's on HBO Max. Yeah, so that, and then, you know, Amanda Pete was great in this. So yeah, and then there's some other shows we can uh, potentially get into, depending on time or whatever else, but... Yeah, this is going to be a really fun project. You know, any excuse to rewatch Party Down and Freaks and Geeks and Togetherness sounds very promising. Like I said, you haven't stirred me wrong yet. And High Fidelity, again, the great thing about this podcast is getting the excuse to watch shows that I haven't watched. And that's one of those shows that I definitely meant to. It got really good reviews from you who I trust in this aspect since you love the movie as much as I do. And then it just got canceled. What the hell? Yeah, I that that might be the one that I'm the most angry about of all the early cancellation. Like I've I guess because I've almost made my peace with Freaks and Geeks and like the fact that it is like this perfect gem of 13 episodes and the fact that everybody from that show has gone on to have so much success. Like I've almost come to accept the fact that Freaks and Geeks has just it's like this gem of a thing. But like High Fidelity and Togetherness being canceled it it I'm still angry about it. But it's 18 episodes. I thought it was, okay, 18 episodes of Freaks and Geeks. Sorry. Yeah. Either way. Yeah, and, and I think there is something to be said about, like, a show maybe went away too early, but at least it didn't go on too long, and you don't like it as much as you would like have. Like Simpsons, didn't, so. for instance? Uh, yes. Uh, but yeah, so there, so there is the, that interesting dynamic, too, is, like, be careful what you wish for when it comes to more episodes of a show sometimes. I just realized we could also talk about the critic as well. Could do that. I know uh, Undeclared is a show that I really love. That's another Judd Apatow mm-hmm. show, but I don't know what it's um, how easy it is to watch on streaming and stuff. But well, th- we have options is is what we're trying to say. Yeah, I love the critic, and yeah, I would love yeah. to review the critic now. Critic now seems like something we should probably talk about. <laughs> what what if what do we know about critiquing anything, Kevin? <laughs> Everything stinks, Mister Sherman. Kevin, this is that was that was your time to kind of plug anything that you wanted to plug. Oh, well, I'm I'm not good at this. I've been podcasting for a decade and I'm still no good at it. <laughs> I literally just fed you and you blew it. Yeah, I know. I know. And yeah, that's probably not going to change. Kevin, let's 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 do a second take. Kevin, what would you know about reviewing anything? 
See, I don't even like. Do I talk, mention the podcast or my wrestling? I don't know. Uh, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this. Uh, you're the worst. What do you recommend? What should I plug? Uh, you should plug the fact that uh, you review wrestling uh, for Chikara Special. Uh, yes. You should plug from Broadcast Depth, a podcast that you did about Lost with your friend Ben. Uh, Mars Investigated, Real Bad. We've talked about Barry. Uh, we've talked about now Brockmire. Uh, what All else? those things. Yeah. Um, so the only other podcast I've done here uh, in this in fall, aside from our podcast together, is the final episode of Adventure Times uh, Distant Land series on HBO Max came out in September. And myself, Justin Houston and Brad did a podcast about that. So if you've not listened to episode 83 of Flooping the Pig, go check that out from September. It's the the final episode for now until the next Adventure Time thing comes out. Uh, and we'll talk about what that is and our thoughts on that and some other random things there. But as far as critiquing, yes, there is Chikara special at WordPress.com for archives of every Chikara show reviewed ever. And, eh, you know, a new thing here and there. But a consistent thing I'm doing is actually uh, at Kevin-Ford.com is my review blog for current Ring of Honor television in New Japan Strong, which is their USA branch. Every week I review those episodes and that's available all there, all the archives and everything else. So that's been a really fun thing to to keep constant with some stuff that's uh, in modern wrestling, but not necessarily the most mainstream talked about stuff. But it's been enjoyable. So if you want to read some things, you can do that. And uh, as usual, if you, uh, for whatever reason, are a monster and are still on Twitter, you can follow me on Twitter at K413. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, go check out Pantheon Plus. I took a break, Kevin, from talking about the Muppets to talk about the final season of Brockmire. So you know how important Brockmire has to be for me to do that. I very much appreciate it. So, yes, we are ranking and talking about all of the Bumpet movies. Definitely go check that out. And uh, I'm really excited uh, just to be able to have talked about all of the originals, getting into some of the newer stuff. But, of course, ending on A Muppet Christmas Carol. I'm just very excited for you to talk about uh, Dylan Hornswoggle Postal in Muppets Most Wanted and how he saved the franchise. <sighs> Kevin, why why do you do this to me? <laughs> you know exactly why I do this so, to so, you. So, Kevin, if you're talking about less main, less mainstream wrestling, it, maybe you should start a website about that or something. Yeah, I've been there, done that. All right, Kevin, this is it. We've talked about Brockmire. Next year, we will be talking about something else. We're not sure how we're going to start off. We've got some time to figure that out. But definitely keep an eye on our Twitters and enter the real world. For Kevin, I'm Jerome. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next month and next year. I'm so excited for Baseball 2.0. There's going to be a lot more Canadians, a lot more denim, and a lot more trash talking. Booyah!